Rosemary, I was watching X the other day and they had a little video from Canberra. I thought, oh my gosh, I know someone from Canberra. And it was at the airport where a lady evidently missed her flight and decided that she was going to get out on the tarmac and then flag down the airplane <laughs> on the tarmac. <laughs> so she was literally out on the tarmac. There's video of her trying to alert the pilot. Like what the pilot is going to do, I don't know. But the question in the aerospace community, in the airplane community, is how did somebody get on the tarmac in Canberra? I assume there's a couple of gates or guards or something before you could hit the airplane. And, and second of all, was that you? It wasn't me. It's been a long time since I missed a flight. Um, it, has, it has happened in my life, but not recently. And yeah, Canberra is not the largest airport, technically international. Um, but in reality, it feels more like a rural airport, but there are locking doors between the, um, yeah, the departure lounge and the tarmac. So a little bit surprised. I guess, I guess someone stuffed up and forgot to lock a door. Well, I hope that's the case because (laughs) the pilot was kind of concerned about it. Yeah. She's lucky she didn't get sucked into an engine. That could have happened. That could have really happened. It was very serious. So yeah, hopefully everything goes better in Canberra. And this week on the podcast, we have a lot of crazy, interesting news from all over the world. We're talking about new wind turbines off the coast of Norway. We're talking about new wind turbines in the United States, of all things. Uh, Plus, Orsted is in trouble again in Taiwan. This is a crazy week for wind news. So stay tuned. There's a lot ahead. If you have some free time in early February, you probably ought to go to Denmark and and go see the Leading Edge Erosion of Wind Turbine Blades conference that's going to be held outside of or in where DTU is. Uh, Because Joel and I are going to be there, of course, because where else would we be in February is one of the colder places on the planet. But we are talking about Leading Edge Erosion, and I know Rosemary is a big fan of Leading Edge Erosion and and trying to squash it uh, in our times at LM. But there's a lot of people at, that's going to be at this conference that we, we know that have been on the podcast. Uh, Morton Hamburg from Wind Power Lab. Nicholas Gaudern from Power Curve is going to be there. Danis Cruz from Rones. Uh, Christian Back from DTU. Uh, so there's a, a, a number of really interesting talks that are happening. And it's like all it's, it's not like there's multiple rooms. There's one place where air, all the action is and you're just going to get... Uh, a fire hose of really useful information. So if you're interested in attending that conference, I do think there's still some tickets available. Just go to www.conferencemanager.dk slash the number five L-E-E, and that'll take you to the, the details and how to register and attend that conference. So hopefully we see some of you there in February. Oslo-based startup Worldwide Wind has received approval to test their novel floating wind turbine Designed off the coast of Norway, the current prototype is a 30-kilowatt turbine that measures about 20 meters high and has two sets of three-pronged counter-rotating blades. It's kind of like a whisk, like when you're making cookies, it kind of looks like that. Uh, The design features a vertical axis turbine that can freely spin, obviously, and it tilts with the motion of the waves. So this this wind turbine kind of leans over to one side. The the ballast and all the good stuff are under under the water. Uh, the, this 
Obviously, this pilot is just a, a 30 kilowatt machine, but they're planning on trying to build a 1.2 megawatt machine by 2025. And they con- consider this uh, new technology to be a, a Tesla moment for the wind industry. Rosemary, is it a Tesla moment for the wind industry? And you, you need to remove Elon Musk from that discussion, right? Every time we talk about Tesla, it always emotes down to Elon Musk, but taking Musk out of it, is this a Tesla moment for wind? Uh, can I take it right back to Elon Musk? Oh, I just tried not to. Because I think that this isn't, it's its not necessarily a Tesla moment, but I think it is an Elon Musk moment, but maybe more the like Twitter purchase rather than the, you know, Tesla or SpaceX kind of, um, <laughs> kind of a- event. Surely should we name it? Y or Z or something? Is that what you're saying? No, uh, no. But seriously, I, I'm not. I'm not as negative on these kinds of new wind turbine technologies as I, I know everybody else is. I think that for floating offshore wind, I think that um, the design that evolved and became the best onshore is is not ideally suited for floating offshore wind. I mean, if you just think about trying to make a regular wind turbine float, you can imagine it, put it in your bathtub, your little wind turbine model, it's going to fall over, right? And that's the same problem that, um, yeah, everyone that's trying to do floating offshore wind is, you know, trying to come up with different different ways to get around that. The fastest thing to do is to take an existing turbine and just kind of modify it so that it will um, float. And that's, you know, that, reduces risk in a lot of ways because you already know that the turbine part of it works so you already know how the aerodynamics work and now you've just got to add on all the the floating and bobbing and yeah waves and um all those sorts of things all those new uncertainties are on top of uh existing mature known technology but if you were starting from scratch and there was no onshore wind i feel 100 percent sure that the you know um, three-bladed turbine, a horizontal axis at the top of a very tall tower. That's not what you would end up with if you were starting from scratch offshore. So, um, yeah, so understandably there's a whole a whole bunch of different kinds of wind turbine technologies that are trying to break into this floating offshore space and vertical axis is a big category of those. There's other ones like C12. Um, Aerodin. Yeah, um, and there are some big benefits because the um, – with a vertical axis wind turbine, the generator can be right on the on the bottom. So, you know, you can put the heavy part in the water, which obviously makes it a lot easier to float and be stable. Um, yeah, so that said, it just because that may well have been the way that we went if onshore wind never existed, it doesn't mean that that is going to be the, um, you know, the design that wins out because it's not just about what would be the best technology if you're starting from scratch when we're not starting from scratch. Regular, um, you know, the kind of wind turbine that we're all used to seeing, uh, horizontal axis, three blades on top of a tall tower, that design has had decades and decades to reach maturity and, you know, delivers reliable um, electricity now at a cheap cost most of the time. And when you're trying to develop new technology, doing it in an offshore environment is got to be the hardest place that you could do that, especially floating offshore, which are designed to go in, you know, really deep water far away from the coast. So I think, you know, when you look at any one specific company that's developing a new offshore wind technology, I would say they're, you know, most likely to fail, but it wouldn't surprise me if, a couple of them did succeed. Um, at least, you know, I'll give them, I'll give them a chance. Uh, 
yeah. So, you know, this particular design, I I don't really see it. Um, I would love to see the prototype that I presume that they, you know, tested a prototype extensively in wave tanks and onshore uh, to, you know, uh, work out as many of the kinks as they could before they took it into the really expensive operating environment. Um, I haven't seen a lot of that yet. So I think it might be a case of, you know, um, trying to hype up a technology to get investors and get a lot of money to do development. But then, yeah, it's really challenging offshore. You know, you look at what a lot of wave energy companies have done. They raise enough money to make one prototype. Um, and then, of course, experiences a lot of problems because, you know, that's what a prototype is for. And also because you're trying to test it in the most ridiculously harsh operating environment anywhere. Um, and so they fail. And that would be my expectation for most of these companies too. If I was, um, you know, investing a lot of money in one of these companies, I would try really hard to get enough money to develop it onshore properly first and then, um, you know, gradually and incrementally de-risk it offshore. But just um, you need so much money and so much patience with your money to be able to develop in that way. And that's just not what we see when, you know, investors are used to, I don't know, making making money off a new app or whatever other kind of uh, technologies that that they're used to. So yeah, unfortunately, the consequence is a lot of a lot of failed companies along the way. But isn't timing the most important factor in offshore wind? Have any low interest rates, a, a willing public to purchase the power, the permits to put it in the water, all the cabling, everything coming together at just the right moment. And if you miss that moment you're probably looking at another 10 years and that moment pops up again. Yeah, but I think it's I think it's more than I think we could expand that conversation from offshore wind. Offshore wind is what we're talking about now because that's what we talk about. That's what the podcast is about. That's what we're all interested in. But I think any new technology adaptation has the same problem, right? It has to be at just the right moment and there's not usually an aha moment where it just pops in, right? Like the internet now, we couldn't imagine life without it. But the internet existed for about 10 years before it really became a thing, right? Uh, think about, we talked about Tesla a little, just a little bit ago. Tesla cars have been around since 2011, 2010. And when they first came out, people, you're, you're still fighting the, the tech, technical versus political conversation battle about EVs, even though now almost every manufacturer that makes a, uh, an automobile makes an EV. So... I think offshore wind, and the trouble is exactly what Rosemary said, when all of these investment companies that have a lot of capital are usually looking for a, a quick, you know, throw the capital in, we want it to explode, we want to sell it in a year or two. They want that quick investment cycle. But offshore wind is going to be a longer investment cycle simply because there's a lot of engineering to do and you need at, you need um, the rest of the world to basically take it, to 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 believe that it's going to work, to believe that it's good and to... Um, get it on the grid. So it's going to take a while. There's going to have to be a lot of things that fall into place to make it work. Eventually it will. Um, do I believe that we'll have massive, large-scale floating wind by 2030 anywhere in the world? No. Um, but 2040 or 2050, we'll see it. We'll see it in our lifetimes. Phil, has the funding dried up for projects like this with the interest rate hikes and Orsted losing so much money on projects in New Jersey, it just would seem like if I was to pitch a new offshore wind turbine, there'd be very little response from the 
venture capital markets, investment groups? The short answer is yes. If if you want to introduce a radical technology like this, the first thing they do is you go build yourself a time machine, go back about 35 years and introduce it in the market at that point in time. Because we're already to a point where, and this is what engineers just don't always get, and God bless them, I, I am one, I, I love them, but they just don't understand the difference between technological feasibility and commercial viability. Just because something is technologically feasible, and by the way, I do believe that that this thing that they're putting up in Norway can work, but that doesn't mean that it's commercially viable. The reason being that we see a huge supply chain that would need to be established, uh, you know, different supply chain than what we already have. You know, it's a different type of, yes, they're still using cold rolled steel, but it's probably, you know, different steel, different fixtures, um, you know, different methods for construction and assembly, potentially different bearings than what we're already using. We need supply chain scale and a radical technology like this does not help and accomplish that goal. So it's just, it's, it's never going to get off the ground or, you know, in the water. Um, you know, this is, it's a science project at this point. Let's raise the stakes a little bit. Let's look at the new Siemens offshore wind turbines and the new, like the Haleyad X from GE, which are relatively new. The risk involved with those turbines is still relatively high, right? Just because we don't have a lot of experience with them. And, and so there is a lot of technology going on in offshore wind. It's just pretty much in two platforms. Not a lot of history right there. But you also have a multi-billion dollar company behind the development of that, not some startup that's got like maybe a few million bucks and a hope and a pipe dream. Um, you know, it takes tens of millions, hundreds of millions now. I mean, even designing and developing and commercializing a brand new, you know, 15, 16 megawatt offshore wind turbine, you're talking about in terms of non-recurring engineering somewhere in the ballpark of about 230 million US, um, plus then supply chain, which basically puts it up to close to a billion dollars that you're going to have to invest in, because you're talking about factories, you're talking about um, assembly capabilities, you're talking about vessels to, to support everything that, that you're constructing. Um, now, with floating wind, that's where you do get an advantage because you can do everything keyside and tow it out, so it's not necessarily as much capital, but the fact that we're already, I mean, there are any number of technologies that it's, and, and we've talked about some of them on the show, you know, a spiral welded onshore wind turbine tower. Great idea conceptually, but look at how much money has already been invested in transportation fixtures for a conical steel tube tower from a factory to a project site. You are never going to introduce a radical new technology, and at this point in the industry's mature state of maturity, and do it if you're just some random startup. So, so here's an interesting one for you, Phil, because I was uh, talking with some people online about this today on a LinkedIn post. So I saw this post from, okay, we know this big nasty storm has, has hit Europe in the last week. I can't remember the name of it, search the sea. Um, but there was some video of a floating offshore wind turbine test unit, basically prototype, offshore Spain. And the, the post was like, hey, we took 10 meter waves and we took 100 kilometer an hour winds 
through this storm, and this is how the thing acted and it survived. And everybody was, yay, 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 awesome, that's cool. And it is. However, this is that's a mid-stage between what we're talking about. We're talking about the worldwide wind um, coming in from TRL zero, from a napkin scratch book out to develop some completely new thing offshore. That's one thing. That's super difficult. Right now, we're in the stage where we're adapting regular fixed bottom wind turbines, basically the nacelle and you know the whole unit blades and everything to go onto a floating offshore wind farm or a floating offshore platform. And we're still just figuring that out because the, com- the conversation was, if this is a normal nacelle with the same pitch bearings and yaw bearings and main bearings and rotating equipment and blades that are on a regular fixed bottom offshore wind turbine, how are they handling all of these extra degrees of freedom of this thing tipping back and forth and moving? And has the engineering been done to a- a- adapt that? Because as we know right now, in just in onshore wind turbines where they're concreted into the ground, we're having blade issues, early life fatigue blade issues, early life fatigue drivetrain issues. So now we add a bunch of movement into that. So we're even still at that stage, let alone a completely new product. Get the latest on wind industry news, business, and technology sent straight to you every week. Sign up for the Uptime Tech Newsletter at weatherguardwind.com news. Orsted's 900-megawatt greater Changhua 1 and 2A wind farm off the coast of Taiwan is experiencing further delays due to supply chain bottlenecks. It sounds very similar to what happened in New Jersey with Orsted. 111 jacket foundations and 100 turbines have been installed so far. I've heard 100 and 101, 102 turbines installed, uh, with 89 of them commissioned and generating power. But there's about 10, 11 wind turbines that have yet to be installed. And the problem is, is that the vessel availability, uh, that they've had some bad weather or weather conditions where they weren't able to use the vessels they had, and the vessels are going to sail off and work on another project, it sounds like. So they're going to have to push back the, the completion of that project until the beginning of 2024. That project was started generating power in April of 22, and has a, a bunch of Siemens Gamesa wind turbines. Uh, so it seems like, again, ship availability is driving the project schedules around the world and which leads to project profitability i would assume the longer these projects take to get completed and turned on phil wouldn't you think it's just adding extra cost to orsted's already uh, burgeoning uh negative outlook it is and i mean look we we've known for a while that vessel availability was going to be a, a big issue you know, there's plenty of vessel development going on in China, but they're using it in their domestic market. And you're probably going to have a hard time getting a Chinese vessel repurposed for, um, you know, a project that's being built by a Western company, even in even in Taiwan. Um, and certainly you, you'll have a hard time getting a, a Chinese uh, constructed vessel um, for, you know, other um, uh, other, you know, uh, European projects, unless the the vessel was specifically commissioned by you know a European uh, design company uh, or operator. So in this case, you know we we've run into this situation again where you know a company like Orsted they've got a fixed schedule and any kind of supply chain delays um, that are necessarily going to impact their their time schedule it's going to you know have these knock-on effects and they even said knock-on effects uh um specifically 
Um, and this, this is one example of that. So we're, we're going to see this continue to be an issue until probably about 2026 or 27, when more vessels will become available. There are several um, that are being fabricated. Uh, again, some are actually being fabricated in China, but they're dedicated to um, European companies that are going to use them in, in, you know, your, for European projects. There's a few that are being built in the United States um, for Jones Act compliance. Um, and, you know, the, the Koreans are building some vessels as well because they've got a whole burgeoning market. Um, so, you know, this the problem will eventually resolve itself, but we're just in this, um, you know, period of uh, uncertainty. You know, if you don't already have a vessel booked, you're probably going to have a hard time getting one. And if you're seeing any kind of cost or schedule overruns um, with your project right now, it could leave you in a lurch where, you know, you only have um, maybe 90% of your project built. and you're just going to have to wait a while to to build the other 10% of it. Rosemary, what's happening in Australia on offshore wind and ship availability? Are schedules getting slid to the right because uh, of supply chain issues and in particular ships? So, yeah, offshore in Australia is still, you know, we're still figuring out how how to develop a, a site and how the regulations would work and all that sort of thing. I, I mean, it's not that no work has been done, but... Uh, I'm pretty confident that no one has actually placed any orders for any turbines yet. Um, so, yeah, I guess that's the plus of, of being a slow mover is everybody else can, um, you know, sort, sort out all the problems. Heirloom Energy is a U.S. startup that is backed by Breakthrough Energy Ventures, which is funded by Bill Gates, essentially. And there's some Google people involved with this. Uh, so conceptually, it's it's a series of vertical access blades that are on a track and they go around an oval, kind of like a NASCAR race. <laughs> it's very similar, actually. Uh, so, But the blades pitch as they roll around this racetrack and they generate power somehow through the track and the movement of the blades. So it, it is like a vertical axis wind turbine without the hub. So that there's a, just a track that goes around it. And the reason they're building this is because they think it's easier to build and they have a 50 kilowatt prototype uh, being tested in Wyoming, and they plan to scale it up to something utility scale. They're saying that the levelized cost of energy from this system is about $13 per megawatt hour, which seems really low. And they're predicting CapEx is about a quarter of, of what current wind turbines have. That sounds like a company that hasn't been involved in wind too long and hasn't had to build anything big <laughs> and put it out in remote locations. They also uh, expect that they, they won't need concrete foundations. So I don't know if they're just going to put some of those camping stakes in the ground and just hold this thing down. Uh, they haven't been around a good Kansas wind either, evidently. So the, the thought of this right now is just really interesting. Like why, I guess Bill Gates has a lot of money, Rosemary. And why, why, like where would this be used where you couldn't put up a, a standard three, you know, a standard horizontal axis wind turbine and create power. There's there's a lot to talk about here, but before I talk about why, I want to talk about how. Does anybody know how does this generate electricity? So I understand there's blades on a track and they, you know, they get pushed by the wind and so there's some rotational motion. Great. Okay. But where's the generator? You know, where's the, somewhere there's got to be something 
turning some magnets, right? Yeah, they're magnets in the track and it works like a maglev train. So the same the same physics that works to uh, levitate a maglev train, it's the same thing, just in reverse. Okay, so that's interesting. Um, one thing I love about this technology is that they have a video of an actual thing on their um, on their website. So, it, like, I if it's a computer generation, it's really well done because it's in this patchy grass and you know, like, some <laughs> looks a little bit um, you know cobbled together. But they seem to have a small scale prototype, uh, so you know that sets them ahead of at least ninety nine percent of new wind technologies that I see and that we talk about on this channel. But um, yeah, they list a lot of the the benefits of their technology, and some of those are really interesting because, um, like, they've got listed that it's got a lower profile, so it doesn't need a tall tower. It's better for views. Um, yeah, so that's really nice. Except that we all know that the wind speed gets faster the further away from the ground that you get. You know, there's a reason why we bother to put a hundred meter, hundred and twenty meter tall towers on wind turbines it's because you want that good wind speed um and yeah the power in wind scales with the cube of the wind speed so if you go up high enough to get you know double the wind speed then you've got eight times as much power so um that might be one reason why they're saying that some of their figures are a bit funny because they say it's less than one tenth the cost of a turbine and one third the lcoe so if the cost is one tenth why you're only getting one third um of LCOA wise and LCOA also 10%. And I guess that's because they know that it's not going to capture very much wind. Um, so yeah, that's, it, it's interesting. And, you know, I fall for this trap that I think other people do where you see, oh, this is backed by um, breakthrough or it's, yeah, it's backed by Bill Gates. So someone must have done good due diligence. And I think that that's generally the assumption with, um, or the way that, investors work with, uh, you know, hard tech or um, yet yeah, new energy technologies that actually involve hardware and actually need to, you know, physically perform other than just, you know, it's not like an app where if you get a good business model and some, you know, network effect and, uh, you know, great advertising, then you can scale and make a lot of money. You know, if it's an actual physical technology, then you can't, you know, you can't cheat the engineering. It, it actually, it will actually work or it it won't. And if it doesn't, then you might, you know, be able to list and make a lot of money um, to build a prototype. But once that doesn't go anywhere, people aren't going to be buying them. And, you know, there's no long-term potential in a, a company whose engineering is bad. And I think that it's very common for investors to see, oh, this big name um, company or individual has invested in this. They must have done really great uh, engineering due diligence on it. So it's all sound. Let's chuck our money in as well. Um, and yeah, from the brief look that I've had at the the website, I see a lot of red flags with this one, I would be, you know, usually I'm trying to not be such a fun sponge and, you know, try and at least allow the possibility that some, some new technology is going to do something. I really struggle to see, see the point in this one. Dear, dear Bill Gates, please contact Intel store because we have actual experience in the commercialization of new technologies and we can tell you what's going to work and what isn't. So stop wasting your money and call us instead. There's enough information on the website that you should be able to, you know, yeah, engage Intel Store, engage Partlet Consulting. You know, there must be any number of other people that can 
you know, do what we do. and Anybody, somebody that has experience in the actual industry. Yeah, go through a list of claims and, um, you, you know, just like look at them. It's also, um, I, don't, I know most people are just listening and not watching, uh, but I have, I'm showing this book that I have called Wind Machines that I bought off eBay. It's from 1980 and it's got all these crazy kinds of, uh, you know, new technologies that were new back in 1980 and I, I love it for you know any new technology that you see now you can always look it up look it up in this book and find something similar and yeah this one oh, now I'm struggling to find the page but this one's no exception there are um, designs just like that listed in yeah in this book from 1980 so yeah okay it's uh it, it's new no one's been working on it in 30 years but um there's you know probably Probably there have been. Probably there's been lots of high school science classes and um, lots of backyard inventors that have been working on this and very quickly came to the realisation that this this isn't going to scale um, and abandoned it. But, yeah, anyway. Oh, so here it is. For those people listening at home, I'm just showing a, uh, a picture in the book of yeah, some sails attached to a little cart and the idea is that you put those... Um, yeah, you put those little carts on a track and they get pushed around and they generate electricity, which is basically what this is, except for with, yeah, the addition of, I guess, maglev. There's a video on my YouTube channel where I had Paul, Paul Guype as a guest. Um, we talked about our red, red flags for assessing new wind turbine technologies. Um, and that was, um, yeah, one of the ones that we, we featured in there. Of a Paul has great stories. They're all memorized because you can't find them anywhere. Now, seriously, you know, the thing about Paul is that he remembers all that stuff and when it happened, because if you were to go back and it happened sort of pre-internet, right? So it makes it almost impossible to find the history of some of these stories. And he's just a, a, a good place to to learn very quickly. And his, he has a couple of books, obviously, that provide some of these details. But yeah, the history of wind is kind of murky. It's like the history of casinos. It's about the same level early on. Yeah, so the video on my channel is called Back to the Future of Wind Energy. Hey, Uptime listeners. We know how difficult it is to keep track of the wind industry. That's why we read PES Wind Magazine. PES Wind doesn't summarize the news. It digs into the tough issues. And PES Wind is written by the experts, so you can get the in-depth info you need. Check out the wind industry's leading trade publication, PESWind at PESWind.com. A new project is developing in the drone technology space to inspect offshore wind turbine blades while they are spinning. Uh, partners include RWE, DTU, Wind Energy, Quali Drone, which is a relatively new company, and the Energy Cluster Denmark Group. Uh, currently, the wind turbines are stopped when drone images are taking just because it makes it easier. Uh, but supposedly new drone and AI technology can uh, identify damage while the, the blades are rotating. So there's, a, there's an effort, mostly led by RWE, to go take a look at this technology. And they hope to reduce the cost of inspections. Obviously, when you turn off the, a big 12, 15 megawatt turbine to do a drone inspection, you're losing a lot of production. Uh, so that they've there's about $2.3 million in a budget to go look at this uh, with about a million dollars coming from EU funding and to, until late 2025. So they have about two years to work this out. But guys, I'm just wondering, taking pictures of an object that's moving at roughly 200 miles an hour in very strong winds, 
in the ocean is extremely difficult. This is this, this a very is this a problem that can be solved quickly? I don't think so. And I and I'll take it. This is a so one of my lives I lived was drones for a long time, fixed wing drones and rotorcraft drones and sensor sensor basically fusion with these drones. So whether you were taking thermal cameras and adding RGB cameras and tying them all together, but it was all about uh, inspections, and that's what it was. Whether it was oil and gas or wind turbines or different kinds of assets. So you run into some physics problems here, right? So you know that like the new iPhone has a 48 megapixel camera on it. However, the difference between that, and while they'll never be able to take as good of pictures as say like a DSLR, you know, like an actual big camera, they simply don't allow enough light in. So to get a good picture, a good accurate picture, you need to have a lot of, a lot of pixels per space and you need to be able to gather light quickly. So to take a, it's, so let's think about the thing. Uh, if you're going to take a try, a, try to taking a still image of a turbine blade coming by. So say that thing's coming by at 200 miles an hour, you need to be able to see. And what we talk about hairline cracks, legitimately pull a piece of hair out of your head, and you need to be able to see that. Right? You're talking one pixel, one pixel per millimeter is about the maximum that anybody will allow in an in drone inspection campaign anymore. So. When you get a big tender, it will say one, one millimeter per pixel is the largest will go. It used to be three millimeters per pixel. Uh, so the smallest, basically like, you know, kind of raster little square on the image was three millimeters. Now it's down to one millimeter and it's only going to keep getting smaller. There's, there's phase one out there has a hundred megapixel camera that can take, I think they're down to 0.4 millimeters per pixel. So that those images are getting better and better. But now we got to think about this. Something's going by you at 200 miles an hour. You need to be close enough to it that you can see that hairline crack with your the resolution of your camera. So if you have a 100 megapixel camera, you need to be probably within 20 meters of it to see that thing. Now you have to think about the, the movement of that blade coming by at 90 meters per second, 200 miles an hour or so. And you, now you have to go take a picture so fast that you get zero motion blur within one millimeter. So you're saying that 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 lens has to capture the image and record the image. I can record it afterwards, but either it has to capture the image while that blade hasn't moved the thickness of one millimeter while it's going 200 miles an hour. So it's, there's just not simply physics that can capture that yet if you're trying to take a still image because you can't allow enough light into a camera sensor to do that. So you'll have to be moving with it at some level and i don't know if it's moving the drone you know remotion cam has done the the rotating camera where it's on the ground and the camera actually matches to the rpm of the the wind turbine and takes pictures so that's a thing but now we have to also think about this when you're taking drone imagery uh, for inspections you need to cover four surfaces so you need to cover pressure side of the blade suction side of the blade the trailing edge and the leading edge so how are you gonna you also have to make sure that you can get the leading edge and the trailing edge which is be, you know, pictures from basically 90 degrees to the turbine to, to capture all these things. So there's, it, it, it's a novel idea. If someone can figure it out, you will get a lot of orders. You'll have an, a full, you'll, you'll be swamped with work because of exactly what Alan was saying, shutting down these turbines costs a lot of money. And as we're, it's not, the, the global fleet isn't Mitsubishi M1000As anymore, where it was only one megawatt when they shut them down. <laughs> Three megawatt, four megawatt, five megawatt onshore is normal. Twelve and fifteen going up to eighteen and higher in the in the global marketplace 
offshore is going to become the new norm. So when you shut those down, you're costing thousands of dollars an hour. So for solving this problem would be fantastic. However, it is a hell of a, a feat that's going to do if they can if they can make it happen because you're fighting physics to make it happen. Joel, would they use a series of drones? Like you've seen at carnivals and festivals, these drones that are flying in a pattern. Like I saw one recently, I think it was on TikTok or Twitter or X or whatever they call it today. It looked like a, a skeleton that was moving through the air. And it's just this really core, uh, coordinated approach of flying drones. Could you fly multiple drones simultaneously to create like a grid to capture the blade as it spins across so that you could then assemble an AI processed image from taking multiple uh, photographs? Yeah. Yeah, you could do that. So how that works usually is all of those drones are programmed individually. It's a software in the background and they use differential GPS for the positioning. So regular GPS, like the GPS you have on your, on your cell phone, isn't accurate to five meters maximum. And that's horizontal. Vertically, it's 10 meters and 20 meters out. It's just positioning from one, one unit to the other. But now, if you use differential GPS technology, you can get that down into a 10 centimeter, 20 centimeter range. And so that's what they have to use, ground-based stations and differential GPS to get that to work. So you could do that, absolutely. But now you're also doing this. You're putting multiple drones in the air within a minimum of 50 or a maximum of 50 meters away from a, a rotating turbine. So inside of these units, they have a lot of technology and things that will update at high rates of speed. Now you're actually seeing the controllers within drones operating at 50 hertz. So 50 times a second, they're giving it updates. Hey, you're moving left, go back right. Hey, you're moving right, go back left. That happens 50 times a second within a drone now on a normal basis. There's even more, there's processors that'll do 200 times a second. So if you're doing that, but a big strong, say you're in, you're in 10 meters per second winds and a gust comes at 20 meters per second, in one second, that drone could get pushed 10 meters. That happens, right? So now you have this turbine spinning in front of it and you're sitting with these, these, uh, all these drones out in front of it. And now if you put multiple ones in the air, that's a, po a possible way of solving this issue. However, you still have to be able to capture images with no motion blur in them while the turbines are going, the blades are going by at 90 meters per second. You still have that physics problem. So you'd have a, like a lead drone. It's like when the geese fly south for the winter, you have to have a lead drone out front to a lead duck <laughs> drone out front to capture what the gusts are coming and all the turbulence, right? You'd almost have to do that. How else are you going to do that, fix that problem, right? Am I crazy, Rosemary? You need a lead duck in this situation? Yeah, why not? But you could, for your lead duck, why not get an actual duck and with a helmet with some instrumentation on it? Now you're talking. That's a cost reduction effort. I like it. Why reinvent the wheel when you already have, you know, an animal that knows how to, to fly and communicate and um, all that sort of thing? That's something that Bill Gates could fund right there. The lead duck right there. We ought to call it lead duck. Lead duck LLC. So this week's wind farm of the week comes from Rosemary's homeland of Australia. It is the Windy Hill Wind Farm. It's 20 Entercon E40 turbines. They're each 600 kilowatts. So it's a 12 megawatt wind farm providing enough power for about 3,500 homes. The project was built in 2000, has since had three owners, the Stanmill Corporation, Transfield Services, and Ratch Australia Corporation. The wind turbines are located on private land that continues to be used as a dairy farm and actually has been a part of a 
part of a few court cases that have spurred on some international noise around wind turbine effects on local population. There's some, there's some good Google searches here. So each tower is 44 meters high, uh, relatively small. Remember, they were built in 2000. The turbines used at the facilities are Enercon E40s again. They can rotate at speeds between 14 RPMs and 38 RPMs. And one of the most important things about this wind farm, according to, according to TripAdvisor, the Windy Hill Wind Farm is the number three of 11 things to do in Ravenshoe on the Queensland Tablelands. Ravenshoe. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Ravenshoe. Is it Ravenside? It said Ravenshoe. No, you have to, you have to leave, leave Ravenshoe. Ravenshoe. I was waiting for that. No, no, it's Ravenshoe for sure. I did actually, you know, they say it's, what would you say, number number three tourist activity. And I actually went there as, as a tourist with some colleagues. We were uh, on the way between Cairns Airport and um, uh, some mining tenements inland. And we stopped off and had a look and everybody was, was very interested to have a look at those, yeah, little wind turbines that could still going, 24. 23 years later, not a bad effort. And you can see in the distance, there's a lot of uh, new wind farms being built in the area because, um, yeah, Queensland is such a great wind resource. So that's very interesting. That's going to do it for this week's Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thanks for listening. Please give us a five-star rating on your podcast platform and subscribe in the show notes below to Uptime Tech News, our weekly newsletter. And check out Rosemary's YouTube channel, Engineering with Rosie. And we'll see you here next week on the Uptime Wind Energy Podcast. Thank you.